Back to Luke's Gospel, we go this morning to Luke chapter 5 to pick up where we left off last time at verse 32. When we were here uh, last week, we saw the Pharisees and scribes standing crossed arms outside the home of Levi, a former tax collector. His disciples um, and Jesus gathered there at Levi's home to celebrate with some other tax collectors and, um, and others, as Luke calls them. The, the Pharisees had a name for those others. They called them uh, sinners. Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? They demanded to know from Jesus' disciples. In other words, the first issue was the company that Jesus was keeping, uh, particularly when eating. We may affectionately, I think, call the, the Pharisees the, the party poopers of the uh, ancient Near East, for that is what they were. But Jesus answered them, and lovingly so. They must not have been overly impressed by that answer, however, because rather than repenting themselves and turning to Jesus in faith like Levi did, they turned uh, back Again, and fired another objection. Uh, you know, their first one was that he eats with tax collectors and sinners. And now, in this passage, they criticize him for eating at all. Uh, you know, the, the, other, the other Gospels that record this event give us the impression, by the way, that uh, mingled with the Pharisees were um, disciples of John the Baptist. Um, strange uh, bedfellows, these two. Uh, indeed. Well, let's pray. Father, we ask that you will open our eyes to marvelous things from your law, that you will sanctify us by thy word, for thy word is truth. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 32. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and Offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be placed into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. I will confess to you that uh, it was after no small struggle with myself that uh, a couple of weeks ago I divided this text uh, the way I did so that we should come back to these verses after considering the call uh, to Levi in the last ones. Because really, this is just a continuation 
of the previous ones. The theme is the same. The point is the same, just in different language and wrapped up in what Luke loosely calls a parable. To be quite frank, it is a struggle for preachers that uh, preachers face when they preach consecutively through the Bible, that he, he finds himself, the preacher does, faced with the repetition of the same themes over and over again. And we saw that in Isaiah 2, you might remember. And um, in a twist of irony, uh, Jesus alludes to another passage from Isaiah uh, this morning in uh, Luke's passage, as he often does in Luke's gospel. Uh, the challenge to the preacher, then, is how to present those thoughts in ways that are fresh uh, each week. How we who preach and you who hear might prefer it uh, otherwise, that the Bible had a greater variety of themes within it. How much more interesting it would be, we imagine. Uh, but then after being tempted to complain, we're immediately reminded who wrote the Bible it was holy men of God, of course, carried along by the Holy Spirit. And it has seemed right to the Holy Spirit uh, that we should come back again and again and again to these same very few themes. Jesus himself found his life returning again and again to but a few basic points as these encounters with the Pharisees uh, demonstrates. They kept swinging the same hammer and he kept offering them the same nail. Basically, Jesus' ministry and the intensifying conflict with the Pharisees that marked most of it was a soteriological conflict. That is to say, it is a conflict over the question of how a man or woman, how a boy or girl is saved. Then, if you look back over the history of mankind, that, that's the theme that pervades all of man's thoughts and aspirations. How do I get to the good life? Whether that life is, is now or, or sometime in the future or after this life. Since the fall of man in Adam, we've been looking, been groping in the darkness for salvation. And many, many people today are looking for it in all the wrong places. It's only natural, you know, under our fallen condition, to look for salvation where most people are looking for it today, in their own works, in their own merit, their their own morals, their own goodness, their own accomplishments. When you take all of the world's religions, save one, and boil them all down, they really amount pretty much to the same thing. Salvation by self. Salvation by works. Quid pro quo, tit for tat. This week, after a session of premarital counseling 
of a certain couple whose identity shall remain anonymous. <clears throat> I did what I usually do after any sort of marriage counseling, premarital or otherwise. I went to the store and bought Debbie some flowers. <laughs> there is a, there's hardly anything so perfectly designed as marriage counseling, uh, telling other people what they should do in marriage uh, to make me feel so deeply the woeful shortcomings of my own husbanding. So I brought home tulips from Walmart. Praise God for just an easily pleased wife. And that was Thursday evening. On Friday morning, I was working in the study when Debbie came sweeping in, duster in hand, and dusting books, dusting shelves, dusting desk, and finally dusting the top of my head. And I, I said to her, what, what, what's the matter? Am I, am I dusty? And she says, honey, we're, we're both getting old and dusty. Speak for yourself. I immediately retorted. Uh, talk about taking away with the left hand what you just uh, given with the right. Uh, she stopped at the door on her way out of the study and turned around and said, matter-of-factly, I, I was thinking about making you a nice lunch. <laughs> but now I'm not so sure. And I, I tried to backpedal the best I, I could, but alas, it was all so much like trying to swim in quicksand. And the more my jaws moved, the deeper I felt myself sinking. So I gave up. But a little while later, lo and behold, lunch on the table. I mean mine. Uh, what happened, I asked. The flowers. She said, I saw the flowers again. Later on in the afternoon, I yelled from the study, Dear, uh, would you make me a sandwich to pack for supper tonight? You know what she yelled back? I don't see any more flowers. <laughs> That's the way we naturally uh, think of God, isn't it? It's the way we're bent to think. If we want something, if we, if we want God's favor, if we want eternal life, sin has programmed us to think that we need to curry that favor, that we need to buy God's blessing. We need to bring God some bouquet of some sort to earn his attention. And that's, that's basically what all religions believe, save for biblical Christianity, whether those religions include the doctrine of a personal God or not. Now, Islam, you can speak of, we're in keeping the five pillars and making pilgrimages, uh, even in some cases killing oneself in suicide bombings, is the way to eternal bliss. Or uh, Judaism, with its... Um, Ceremonies and dietary laws and observations, or Buddhism, or Hinduism, even secular humanism, and even broad swaths of what is today considered to be under the umbrella of the Christian 
church. Um, and God forbid that that should be, by the way, any of you. The point is that salvation, however it is defined in this life or in the next, is accomplished in all of those religions, is secured by works. Uh, personally performed, being good, living well, doing good things, these are the ways to salvation. And that was most definitely the view of the lion's share of the Jews in Jesus' day. Despite uh, recent attempts to um, repair the reputation of Pharisees and scribes by modern scholars that assert that they really did believe in salvation uh, by grace. Uh, the fact remains, and there could be no doubt about it, that as far as salvation was concerned, it rested in one's personal behavior to the vast majority of first century Jews. Uh, save, of course, for a few individuals, the likes of whom we've already met in the opening chapters of Luke, who were uh, looking for the Savior to come, uh, who were still expecting, in terms of, you remember Isaiah's expectation of the Redeemer to come, who would die for his people's sins. They were counting on themselves, on their own works, for affecting God's approval. In the Pharisees' case, it was not flowers, but fasts that they offered up to God. And they had become quite proficient at this. You know, the scripture had prescribed, as we've seen in the evening series, one fast at the day of atonement. Uh, leaving all other fasts voluntary matters. By the time of Jesus' incarnation and ministry, some groups within Judaism, including the Pharisees, had gone well beyond the law of Moses and now required two fasts a week. The issue of this morning's passage springs from their having noticed that Jesus' disciples weren't following that regimen of theirs. So they continue their grumbling. Though it's been argued that they may simply hear have been asking for some information, an answer to a straightforward question, a response to their observation in verse 33, where they say the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Now, apparently, John the Baptist had led uh, his disciples in some ascetic uh, practices. That doesn't surprise us and worry us or concern us. It was perfectly right and good and lawful that in particularly in the time when they were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah that they should fast uh, as they watched for the Savior to come. The Pharisees, on the other hand, carried out their twice weekly fasts with gloomy faces, uh, trying to make it obvious to others that they were fasting while at the same time thinking that they were all the while dropping coins into the coffer of heaven, you know, making things right uh, for themselves with God. Well, Jesus' answer is straightforward enough. 
He speaks, as the Bible often does, of himself as the bridegroom and the church as the bride, a theme anticipated long before by the prophets of old who spoke of the relationship between God and his church in terms of a husband and wife. So Jesus replies, verse 34, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? There's that allusion to Isaiah, by the way, that I mentioned earlier to Isaiah 53, in which Isaiah, uh, I'm sorry, you have to go on rather to uh, read in verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. As I say, that's the allusion to um, the Isaiah 53 passage that I mentioned before, by oppression and judgment, uh, he was taken away uh, when Jesus was dragged from them and was beaten and ridiculed and, and ultimately crucified, then it would be time for fasting. But now it was time for feasting. And feasting at wedding times in the ancient Near East, in the practice in Jesus' day, wedding feasts went on and on. They, they went on for uh, an entire week. Something for Mr. and Mrs. Ware to think uh, carefully about for days uh, to come. And feasting is no time for fasting. Not when Jesus is with them. And then he drives it all home, as Jesus often did so well with what Luke calls a, a parable in verse 36 and following, no one tears a piece of piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. Now here, here's where many readers of the Bible pause and scratch their heads. You know, we, we, Jesus, we were, we were with you uh, all the way until the whole wineskin uh, thing and, and the new wine and old wine and new cloth and old cloth. These verses have proven difficult, haven't they, uh, to understand over the years. Even uh, commentaries take uh, different views, but a consensus of interpretation has Arisen, and basically it is this. By these, uh, this parable, or these parables, Jesus is comparing the Pharisees' uh, attempts at self-salvation uh, by works to an old garment. Uh, generations, by the time Jesus came onto the scene, had been trying their best to save themselves by their Works So many by that time that when they sang, give me that old time religion, that's what they meant. Give me that old time pharisaical works religion. But here comes Jesus bringing with him a new message. Though, of course, it was old, as old as redemption itself, as old as Genesis 3.15. Seems... Seems quite new, though, this message. Salvation by grace through faith. 
It had been so long forgotten. It had been so completely buried under layer upon layer upon layer of tradition. It seemed at the time like a new garment. But Jesus knew the tendencies of the human heart very well. What people would want to do with him would be to uh, you know, take a little bit of Jesus, cut out a little snippet of, of Jesus, of the new garment, and sort of patch it on to the failing religion of their day and of their hearts. You know, uh, slap a little bit of Jesus on, but keep trusting in the traditions, in the old garment. The problem is that you cannot piece together your own religion. You, you can't take the cafeteria style to salvation. You can't uh, piece together different chunks of cloths. They don't match. They don't work together. You'll only end up tearing a new garment, uh, Christ in this case, to create a religion that uh, can't possibly work. Can't uh, certainly work for the ultimate purposes of of eternal life. If Jesus made anything clear in his ministry, it is this. It must be Jesus. All Jesus. Only Jesus. Or no Jesus. Same with the lesson of the wineskins. The religion of works by any name is an old, worn-out, stretched-out, dried-out religion. It was like new wineskins, <clears throat> uh, well, like wineskins, rather, that had already served their purposes, these old wineskins. You need to understand how this uh, worked at the time. I know many of you already do. Uh, people were accustomed to uh, stripping the skin off of an animal and sewing up the places where the legs and the tail had been. And after the skin was stripped of the hair and, and treated uh, the way it needed to be properly prepared, it could hold liquid inside it. This animal skin became a liquid uh, container. And the place where the animal's neck had been would become the neck of this uh, vessel, this container. And into that container, into that skin, they would pour new wine. Now, a new wine would still be in the process of fermentation. The yeast making its way around in the wine would still be converting the sugars into alcohol. And in the process, uh, yeast gives off during fermentation uh, carbon dioxide. And that carbon dioxide would cause that skin to, to expand from the pressure inside of it. Uh, still today, when you uh, make wine, you have to vent the vessel in which you make that wine or else it'll explode uh, in the process of fermentation. So old wineskins that had served their purpose uh, had already undergone that expansion process of putting new wine in old stretched out wineskins would be Therefore, a real mistake, you know, resulting in an explosive uh, double disaster. Um, lost wine, a ruined wineskin. 
So with the pharisaical system of works salvation. You know, trying to hold on to the old wineskins of that religion and, and pouring Jesus into that old system was disastrous. The two were simply incompatible. Jesus had come to bring explosive joy, abundant happiness in salvation. Their old pharisaical works system of religion couldn't possibly support or contain what Jesus had had brought. The third lesson, people who've grown accustomed to the old wine, who are comfortable with the way things are, with the status quo, are, well, just that. They're, They're comfortable. The old wine is fine, they say. The old wine is fine. You know that my parents visit from time to time, and you know that um, my father, I think a lot of you know that my father is a a vintner, and so when he comes down to Owensboro, he usually brings with him a bottle of his wine for us to enjoy together. He did just that about a year ago, Uh, but he had at a previous visit brought me a a couple of uh, bottles of the same wine, but from an earlier uh, vintage uh, I opened uh, right before supper one of those older bottles uh, while they were here and poured each of us a glass. We uh, drank and I enjoyed it, enjoyed what I had, that, that old wine. But my father grimaced. It was his own wine. You know, what could be the matter? Can't you tell? He replied. I confess I'm no connoisseur of wines. I I thought it was good. Dump it down the drain, he said. And we dumped both our glasses down the drain. And that was painful. And he reached into his bag and pulled out a newer bottle. It wasn't brand new wine, mind you. I do know enough about wine to know that when it's brand new, uh, it's sharp and um, very alcohol-forward, biting on the palate. But, but it was newer. It was new compared to my old, and he poured it in my glass, and immediately I understood. I mean, before I even put it to my lips, I understood. The old wine, I thought the old wine was good, and I would have been satisfied to drink it. But the new the fruity nose, the vibrant flavors, the smooth finish, the new was definitely better than the old. And I dumped that entire old bottle down the drain. But here's the point. I would have gladly, ignorantly, drank the old because I thought it was fine. The Pharisees thought the old wine was just fine, too. They had no interest in the new wine of Jesus. 
Because they were content with the old, the, the flat, the bitter way. The misery of trying to climb their way to heaven on a ladder of water was perfectly suitable to their taste. They'd grown accustomed to it. They could stick with it, with the old, even if it meant eventually putting the one who offered them new wine to death on the cross. They would prefer the old. Well, now it comes down to you, my friends. What will you do with this Jesus? Or maybe just as importantly, I might ask, what will you not do? Or may I assert, what may you not do? Well, first, you may not, you may not take a little bit of Jesus, patch him onto the worn out garments of your works religion, and think that you're doing well. In other words, you cannot continue the way you were by nature conceived. Trusting in your works, offering your pathetic posies to God while slapping on a little bit of Jesus for good measure. Considering all that the Bible has to say about the way a man or woman, a boy or girl is saved utterly and completely from beginning to end by the work of Jesus Christ and none of their own. You will not want the judgment day to find you still dressed in the shabby garments of your works, trying to please God with a little bit of Jesus uh, sewn onto your elbow. It won't work. Better that you should have, and I mean this, that you should have no Jesus that day than that you should try to mix a little bit of Jesus with your own plan. Second, you may not think to drink in Jesus while remaining in your old ways. New wine is simply incompatible with the old wineskins of your innate inclination to fall back on your own works. Your do this, do that, and everything will be okay religion. Besides anyone who has really met the bridegroom, seen him who has come from heaven for them, who knows from experience his love shed upon his or her heart, who has measured the sacrifice paid by the bridegroom bloodied on the cross, has also measured his own merits by comparison and found them full lacking. Not only lacking, but simply incapable of supporting the weight of the joy and of the glory that is in Christ Jesus that only he can accomplish by that change that his grace accomplishes in you when he makes of you a new creation, root and branch, wine and 
skin, inside and out. Third, you may not remain content with old wine. What Jesus offers you is salvation. Fresh and overflowing with exuberant joy. That's what new wine means in the Bible. Joy overflowing. And as long as you are willing to keep drinking the old, tasteless wine of your works religion, you'll miss out on the new. You have to dump the old down the drain first before your cup can be filled full and overflowing with Christ. Amen.